Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, 10 days to go before President-elect Biden takes the oath of office, and the country is still reeling from violent protesters breaking into the Capitol, while some congressional lawmakers continue to object to the certified election. At the same time, historic Senate elections in Georgia reset the balance of power in Washington. And locally, state lawmakers are calling a Massachusetts climate bill the strongest measure of its kind in the country. Those stories and more in our Politics Roundtable. Joining me remotely, Erin O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, Erin. Hey, good to be here. Luis Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Luis. Thank you so much. Always glad to be here. And Shannon Jenkins, Interim Assistant Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, and Professor of Political Science. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having us. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. Well, we'll start with the obvious. Been a couple of days since uh, this happened, but it's fresh. And I want to start with just a little bit of what was on the ground from the pro Trump mob that gathered in Washington, D.C. last week. Time to take your house back. There's more of us than there are them. There's people inside right now. We're going to go back in. We're taking this house tonight. This is not going to stop. So as a reminder, President Trump had addressed this group uh, down the street earlier um, and encouraged them to walk back to the Capitol. So that was a response to that. And here he is. This is hours after the actual lining up of all of these people at the Capitol on the steps and breaking into uh, the Capitol offices. So here's President Trump addressing citizens in a video after the mob broke into Capitol Hill. This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. Now, that video was released. It was taped by the White House, but was released after President-elect Joe Biden addressed the nation amid the insurrection. It was still going on at the time, but uh, he made a statement, and here he is. We're seeing a small number of extremists dedicated to lawlessness. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. It borders on sedition, and it must end now. Therefore, I call on President Trump to go on national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this siege. So I wanted to get that uh, sound just to put you back in the mindset, not that I think any of us have can forget it. But I come to you three in this instance uh, and the members of your group, the Mass Politics Profs, to put a historical context around these kinds of incidents. 
So I'll start with you, Aaron. How do you begin to talk to the rest of us about looking at that scene? What is the meaning of it? You know, I think what you said, these kinds of incidents is so key. We don't have these kinds of incidents. Um, the closest one, as many of us now know, was 1812. And so I think what a lot of people in the United States are doing is trying to place this uh, in line with other protests. How is this like other protests? And the answer is it's not because the ends are entirely different. We've all seen protest activity for various things, right? This was a very specific end to stop the certification of a democratic election that has been checked by the courts, that has had recounts at the state level. This was petulant children, but petulant children who are hitting at the very heart of democracy. So I think it's really dangerous um, when we try to say it's like other things. It is fundamentally different because their goals were to undermine democracy. Hard stop. Louise? I think what really struck me about this is not so much that it had any capability of succeeding at all. I don't, I was not worried that they were going to succeed in overturning the democratic order. But the fact that they tried was so degrading, I think, to the American ideal. There's a lot of flaws with the United States that we could bring up about its history and about a lot of things. But the one thing that has stood out through time is exactly the peaceful transition of power. I think that's the one thing that we can say is absolutely American. The fact that these people tried to do that felt to me very degrading about the, the thing that I admire about the United States. So I think it's very dangerous as, as Aaron said, and I'm afraid that this might not be the last time that we see violence, which is what really worries me. Shannon. So I'm going to both um, agree and disagree with Aaron's take here. And in the one sense that what we saw was was different than other protests that we've seen over the last few years. On the other hand, I don't think it's out of the ordinary. I think this is, it's too easy to say this is not America when in fact it is America, right? America has a history of white supremacist violence against people of color, people who are different, right? And if we look back through history, which I will admit, you know, I, I'm still learning, you know, someone talked about um, riots in Wilmington, Delaware that I don't know about. But we look at Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? The civil rights movement, right? If we look at this through the lens of, of race, of ethnicity, this is what happens in America, right? When white supremacy is challenged. And so in a certain sense, it, 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 is, it is both different but both a deep part of our history. So a couple of facts that we should reiterate. Four people died at this taping, that's what we know, and a dozen uh, police officers were injured. And um, the first person who died was a woman, and she's a San Diego resident Air Force veteran. Her name is Ashley Babbitt. The other fact is that hours after all of this happened, uh, the Congress regrouped, and, you know, did the business that it was there to do and formalized uh, President-elect Biden's uh, victory, though there was continuing congressional pushback. So let me start with you, Shannon, to get your response to that, because there was some hope that while they were holed up waiting for all of this to pass so they could return to the floor, that they could talk to their uh, Republican colleagues and say, really, th 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 you know, enough. And that worked for some, but not for others. So, Shannon, your response. 
Right. So there, I think there's two groups of, of people here, right? There are people who believe um, in, in this information. There are people who are using this to appeal to their base. Um, appeals to decency work for people who are just using this to appeal to their base. But for those people who fundamentally believe in this, that they believe the election is stolen, appeals to decency will not work, right? They're fundamentally different psychological processes. Hmm. Louise? I agree with Shannon on that. And, um, but I think that the people that are most responsible are exactly the people that know that they're lying, that they're being cynical. Uh, Mitt Romney, of all people, um, had the, a fantastic speech on the floor that said the only way that you can combat this uh, is not by giving them, you know, the, the, what they wanted, which was a, a delay in the results and all of this. That's not going to solve anything precisely because people, if, if people believe that, this, that the election is being stolen, they're not going to be appeased by having somebody else tell them that the election, that Biden won the election. It doesn't matter what kind of, uh, you know, how you get to that point. It doesn't matter who tells them that. The only way you can combat this is by telling the truth, which is what Romney said. That is absolutely right. And the fact is these people have been lied to and they continue to be lied to cynically by those uh, representatives and senators that are doing this to, you know, for their own political purposes, but also by right-wing media and by all of the people that do this through social media that are trying to get likes or trying to get some kind of play. It is terrible for our country. Aaron. You know, there's profit and disinformation. When I watch that, I think to myself, yes, it was extraordinary that the Congress came back and was able to certify the election. But what if we want a quick indicator about what we might learn, um, will there be change after this? I think it's best to look at those 14 senators, Republican senators, who had planned to object. Eight of them decided not to after uh, the incidents at the Capitol, but six stuck with their guns, quite literally, I guess. That's scary. They have reason, they know better, but they have reasoned that is in their electoral self-interest to keep the lies going, to not show the leadership Louise uh, referred to. And they're speaking to that, that group that Shannon talked about that fundamentally really believe the election was stolen, that they're not cynics. They believe themselves to be patriots. So uh, I think the Republican Party has more fractures after this because there had been a Band-Aid over these two elements because it was electorally efficacious. But uh, that Band-Aid has been ripped off. Well, speaking of some of the people who are in office, there is a thread about literally, you know, the color of this response from the police who were there and uh, to these particular rioters, because that's what they should be called. Others have, you know, finally called them thugs and and worse. One of them was a West Virginia delegate, Derek Evans. I mean, this is the level we're at. He actually helped some of the group who were not elected, as he is, to break in and took selfies. You know, these are people who were just sworn in, you know, a couple of days before, because this is the new, you know, Congress. And he he took selfies with them. There were also police officers who were taking selfies inside the chamber, you know, next to these people. This would never, ever, ever happen if the folks who were in that group were persons of color and certainly black folks. 
Um, Doc Rivers, as people will know, coach, you know, was one of the many people who said this, but he said, you know, I keep hearing this attack on democracy. He says, it's not. Democracy will prevail. It always does. He says, but when you look at those riots and the police and the National Guard from this summer, you see this and you saw nothing. It be- it basically proves the point about a privileged life in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to agree with him. So I wanted to get your response to that. How do we address that? How does how is that uh, taken into account as we look at, you know, overall what was happening yesterday? I mean, race has always been the defining cleavage in U.S. American politics. And those protesters felt comfortable recording themselves. They felt comfortable storming the Capitol because uh, whether they know it or not, they're sitting on that privilege, um, that, that willingness to walk through rest on such incredible privilege. We saw a dry run of it in Michigan. If you're white, you're armed, you're pro-Trump, then you know they're gonna let you in. They're gonna let you storm a Capitol. And there's no better visual images in terms of comparison between what happened this summer, the militarization of the responses, the organization across different branches, and what we saw from a totally predictable thing last week. They guessed that government and the police would not come down hard on them, and they guessed correctly. I, I want to follow up on that, too, to, to say, you know, Aaron just said, well, they guessed the government would let them in. And you know what else government let them do? They let them out. Yeah. Right. That's that, right. to me, is mm-hmm. more problematic. The images of people I can understand about maybe not wanting to disperse or inflame the crowd that's outside to make things worse. But to me, no one should have been allowed to leave that building except in a paddy wagon. Right. Yeah. And the fact that the Capitol Police held the door for those people and they were on TV giving interviews later that evening was appalling. And I believe that needs to be investigated. Right. You, you, they broke numerous laws in breaking into the Capitol and they were let go. And that, to me, is an even more damning example of privilege. Louise. Absolutely appalling. I agree. I think this year in particular has been exceptional in showing um, the myth of the police that is central to a lot of the way we talk about them. And I think in this particular case where we have plenty of evidence from just basically every other protest in Washington, D.C., where the police will always respond uh, overwhelmingly with force whenever even people get close to the Capitol. I, I mean, there's there's really no way around it. It's very clear that the police acted differently here. Uh, it needs to be investigated, but as to the point of how you how you even begin to solve this problem, um, I'm, I really have no words because it's so much worse than I really than, than I thought. I never would have expected the police to be so, what Shannon said, to even let them go. But the very first thing we need to do is we need to acknowledge that this is a problem. That's the first thing. And uh, we can't even say what they did, the, uh, the amount of thank, thank gosh for the police, thank gosh for the police. It's important to differentiate between the different outfits. Maybe Capitol Police was terrible, but others we don't know about were good. I'm totally willing to do that. But, uh, uh, but, but it's just unfathomable to me that we can't even entertain the idea after that some of these police officers were either in on it or when it was happened, didn't want us make it stop and wanted to let those people go. That maybe for some percentage of the police there, the only difference between them and thoughts and action and the rioters were that they're in uniform. 
All right. One more piece uh, relative to the Capitol break-in and the rioting in this group, and that is now the conversation, some conversation moving toward uh, removing President Trump from office or invoking the 25th Amendment, which is supposed to acknowledge that he has some issues or whomever in in the office has some issues and that then the presidency should be turned over to Mike Pence. To some degree, just for a factual basis, that did happen during the midst of this because President Trump was not involved for the calling in of more troops and the asking for more um, help, really. He he was not in that discussion. That was Mike Pence. So it's kind of bizarre. And he has uh, more days to go before uh, President-elect Biden takes office, as I said at the beginning. So what do you think about those um, possibilities? And, you know, is this something that is even possible to happen, particularly at this late date? I'll start with you, Shannon. You know, it's not entirely clear to me under what authority Pence sort of invoked, you know, these actions. But but my understanding right now is that um, he was acting as, in his capacity as the presiding officer of the Senate, um, which is different than sort of invoking power at, as the vice president on his own. Um, and the reason why I point that out is because I do not think it's probable um, that President Trump will be sidelined. I could be wrong. I have been wrong before on these <laughs> sorts of things. But if you look at sort of polling data, um, a large segment of the Republican base did not think, right, YouGov did a quick in the field poll. Um, a large sector, a section of the Republican electorate doesn't doesn't think this is wrong. They think these people are patriots. Um, and the split is almost along the lines of the numbers that Aaron mentioned. You know, it's about 40% of of Republicans. And so I just right now don't think there's enough of the Republican Party who really want to take on that issue, um, you know, when we're we're so close to President Trump being out of office. Okay, Louise. I agree with Shannon, but here's the thing. They should have immediately impeached him right after they uh, certified President Biden's uh, win. They should have done that because you cannot let this stand. You cannot, for so many years now, uh, Trump has escalated and escalated and escalated, um, breaking norms and breaking more norms. And the Republican Party has not done anything because they have an incentive, just like Shannon mentioned. They have an incentive, an electoral one, to go along with it and thinking, oh, well, you know, how bad could it get? In fact, you remember that quote, we're just gonna um, let him, you know, blow a little steam. I mean, how bad could it get? Uh, and we know how bad can it, it, we saw how bad it could get, but the thing is it can get much worse. It can get much worse. Um, the real question is why isn't the Democratic Party doing something? Even though it's true that what Shannon says, it's unlikely that they could have removed, that they can remove the president either through the 25th or through impeachment. You still have to make a, a stand in saying this is not right. You cannot allow this to happen. Instead, what's going to happen is exactly what Shannon just mentioned, um, that it's just, you know, oh, well, this was a little protest that went out of hand, but oh, well, and we cannot let that happen. I'm sorry. Aaron? You know, this is why the 25th Amendment exists. I mean, it's it's textbook. Um, will it happen? In all likelihood, no. 
um, you know, uh, I'm not Mike Pence, but I think he might be convinced, especially after Donald Trump, you know, put him in a very precarious position. But let's be reminded that Donald Trump has put in um, true sycophants uh, in many, not all of the cabinet positions. So I don't see it happening, but I am struck by listening to my colleagues speak a certain similarity between Democrats and Republicans. Luis asked, why won't Democrats uh, act? And I think that Democrats are afraid. Elected Democrats think we impeached him once and there's not a taste for it in the electorate. So we can't do it. And then Shannon talked about the, you know, the 40-ish percent uh, of Republicans who are true believers on this. And you see elected Republicans saying, but our people think something was awry. Our people think there was fraud. And, and the continuity line there is a lack of leadership, a lack of some, now I'm not saying they're the same thing. It's not a false equivalency, but Democrats, if he deserves to be impeached, impeach him. Republicans, if the election wasn't stolen, say it. You know, it's, it's this false reliance on representation. They're afraid to take action that hurts their electoral calculus, um, but they do so at the expense of the polity. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. And the reverberations from this event, of course, are going to be long term, even if we don't know exactly what they are going to be in the moment. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. We're discussing everything from the riot on Washington, D.C., and right now we're going to turn to the Georgia Senate election results. Let's begin there, because while all this was happening, uh, historic moves were being made in Georgia. So... Of course, both of the runoff elections ended up with uh, Democrats having a victory. But what wasn't known while the riots were happening uh, was that John Ossoff's race was too close to call, and then it finally got called. So now both he and Raphael Warnock are winners. Here they both are um, last week after winning the runoff Senate elections. So I come before you tonight as a man who knows that the improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here. I want to thank the people of Georgia for participating in this election. Everybody who cast your ballot, everybody who put your faith and confidence in our democracy's capacity to deliver the representation that we deserve, whether you were for me or against me, I'll be for you. So that was uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock and uh, John Ossoff uh, talking about their victories. Let's talk about the historic nature of their wins. You know, much has been said about the fact that because uh, they won, now there is a 50-50 split in the Senate and Kamala Harris makes uh, is the tiebreaker. So that resets the power balance. But in and of itself, even if that wasn't on the table, their winning in Georgia is pretty amazing, Aaron. Yes, it is. Um, you know, uh, my Newport News roots come out, but you know, in political science, um, there's a long history in studying Southern politics. Some of our most famous um, texts are including Southern politics and really, really trying to dig into Southern politics. Nationally, this is huge. Obviously, the, the Senate ramifications, 50-50, but the Democrats get to you know um, be chairpersons of committees and all that, that is huge. 
But I also think um, maybe because we're up north, we haven't talked as much about the realignment or potential realignments in Southern politics that opening up Georgia causes. I don't think Arkansas is gonna go blue anytime soon, but um, the, the, the solid Southern block that has defined the last 15, 20 years um, what was rocked in this particular election. So I find that interesting. Um, I do think a 50-50 Senate, um, some people are a little too excited about on the Democratic side. Uh, it's gonna be really <laughs> hard to get anything through. So um, the ways in which it, it, Joe Biden's in good shape because of the way the structural uh, rules of the Senate favor the majority party, but getting Joe Manchin <laughs> to agree, Joe Manchin being a conservative Democrat out of West Virginia, to agree to things like the Green New Deal um, will be an uphill battle. But if you're a Democrat, it's decidedly good news. And if you're someone who wants to see more moderation and bipartisanship out of the Senate, the moderates, the Susan Collins, um, the Mitt Romneys, the Joe Manchins have really been uh, empowered legislatively uh, moving forward. Uh, Louise. Yeah, historical. Uh, let me remind your audience that there has only ever been 10 black senators ever from anywhere. Wow. Uh, and um, Warnock would be the second black senator uh, from the South since Reconstruction. So this is indeed exceptional. Of course, there hasn't been that many Jewish senators either. And the fact that they did this in Georgia uh, truly is exceptional. But the question really is in terms of uh, what this tells us about the New South is whether uh, this is going to be something that is sustainable. We'll find out in two years with Warnock when he runs again uh, for re-election. Uh, but it does seem, one thing that, that uh, really struck me is that they seem to have found a formula which is different from what other Democrats had used in the South before, not just in terms of race, uh, you know, the actual candidate, but the, the coalition that they're that they're using, which is the suburbs, um, college educated, and people of color. So I, I find this really exciting in terms of uh, the changes that this could bring. People are talking about, uh, political scientists are wondering if Georgia is going to turn like Virginia, which if you remember about 10 years ago, maybe 15 was pretty red and now it's very blue. Uh, or whether it's going to be more like North Carolina, where Obama won in 2008 and people wonder if this was going to change anything. Um, my guess is it's going to be somewhere in the middle, but um, it does show at the very least new paths of victory. So we'll see. Well, just to add to that, uh, Luis, um, Latinos were a big part of the success of uh, both of these candidates, which might strike some people who have been paying attention to the African-American vote because that's been emphasized. But apparently it was the largest turnout ever by Latinos uh, for these for this runoff elections. That is correct. And I am, as I've said before in your show, I'm very excited that uh, Latinos are being paid attention to. There was a massive mobilization to try to get them to vote. And it seems that it's finally starting to work. So I'm excited about how that's going to turn in the future. Uh, Shannon, I, I really, I really do want to follow up on what Louise said and, and highlight the work of grassroots organizing in Georgia is really what made this possible. Um, and for so long, I think that the people have focused on changing people's minds. Um, and you know, Stacey Abrams is the face of this movement, but she is not the only person in this movement. Um, you know, I want to highlight the role of the WNBA, um, as well as predominantly Black women in mobilizing. 
right? And so the preliminary data that I'm seeing suggests that it, no one's minds really changed between the general um, and, the, and the runoff, but more people voted. Um, and that's, a, that's an important strategy both for both sides, but um, particularly for Democrats, right? Um, this is not a, a two-month sort of thing, right? This is the culmination of, um, uh, of 10 years of work, right, um, uh, in Georgia. And so it's a long, hard slog. But as, you know, Stacey Abram and this coalition um, has shown that it is possible. Um, and then sort of nationally, I just want to point out that I just feel that it's very sort of typical that the first time uh, you know, a woman ascends to a position of power. She has to do both her new job and her old job right, <laughs> at the same time. Like Kamala Harris doesn't get to stop being a senator, um, essentially, because she's going to have to continue voting in the Senate to, to break ties. So, And she won't get paid any more for it. <laughs> exactly. That is right. Well, that is that is really an interesting point. Um, I do, following up on what you said, Shannon, uh, want to make the point that the the wins are even more amazing when you understand the intensity of the voter suppression. So to your point about there were many groups, there were organizing, they were really pushing back against this um, very intense voter suppression. So here's Black Voters Matter co-founder Latasha Brown speaking about voter suppression in Georgia. It's baffling to me that um, Raffensperger is being perceived as some kind of hero. The truth of the matter is he just simply doesn't want to go to jail. He doesn't want to cross over into this new territory that Trump is asking him to do. Truth of the matter is he's done everything in his office to make sure that he gave Trump the best possible, and the Republicans, the best possible opportunity to be able to steal this election, starting with the disenfranchisement of almost 200,000 voters. This state has been ground zero for voter suppression. And what we're seeing and witnessing right now with black voters being a key constituency group that's coming out is not because voter suppression doesn't exist in the state. It's not because Raffensperger is doing such a good job. We've out-organized them. So I thought that was important to hear because Stacey Abrams is on record saying hours after I think Ossoff was uh, declared the winner that this is not the end. It is the beginning of more movement um, and organization. It should also be noted that uh, several analysts have pointed out that because of the intensity of the voter suppression, the expectation is that when the Republican-led state legislature is, you know, back in session or doing what they do, that one of their for- first orders of business will be to um, draw up some more legal obstacles uh, to try to block all of the people who represent the folks in this newest coalition that Louise mentioned. And we should also point to there were uh, 76,000, I think at last count, uh, young people who also who had never voted before who voted in this. So expect um, more voter su- suppression through the legislature um, if uh, what these organizers who've been on the ground um, expect to happen and predict will happen. And that's right. I mean, there will be a response. The the Democrats that are so pleased about the Senate victories, they should be. But what's going on at the state level in terms of the Georgia state legislature has not changed. What we learn via this cycle is uh, individuals in Georgia running elections are very much okay with front-loading voter suppression, but but their line in the sand is actually changing votes. And so that that the same hurdles remain. 
um, uh, it, it's striking to me to get such accolades for doing your job. That's not to say I'm not incredibly pleased that they're doing their job, but because it's, it's become a low bar. And it won't be just in Georgia. This is going to expand in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, everywhere where Republicans have a legislature that can do something about it. And this is, I will add, why I, I expect that one of the first orders of business for the for the democratically controlled Senate to pick up will be a voting rights act. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to leave those two big stories where they are um, and go forward with some perhaps better news <laughs> politically. Coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our politics discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. Let's jump back into the conversation. One of the things that locally has happened that's pretty interesting is Massachusetts legislature has just passed this mammoth climate uh, change bill. So you might ask the question of why why do I talk to the three of you uh, looking at looking at politics with regard to that. But as we all know, climate change has been a hot button political issue for um, in many places and even in what is perceived to be liberal Massachusetts. It's a, a hot button issue here. So this is a pretty extensive. Some people call it a landmark bill. Wanted to get your take on it. Uh, Luis, I'll start with you. Well, uh, Governor Baker's brand, if you will, is a very bipartisan sort of neutral um, stance, right? So this, I think, adds to his credentials. Uh, so politically, I would think it would place what it would play well for him. Um, but I do want to mention exactly what you talked about, which is this is a problem that we're not paying enough attention to, or we haven't been because we're distracted by all of these things happening with the Trump administration and so many other issues, COVID and so on, but climate change doesn't care. And so I am very excited about that Massachusetts is taking a leadership on this. So I'm, I'm very pleased that they're doing this and that they were able to do it. So part of the legislation, uh, Shannon, sets a 2050 net zero greenhouse gas emissions limit, which could sound like it's a long way away, but actually it's not so far away. Statewide limits every five years, increasing requirements for offshore wind energy procurement, state energy efficiency programs. And here's something that people are very excited about. It's the first time establishing a criteria in a statute that defines environmental justice populations, which has been an ongoing issue. So it's pretty progressive. It it definitely is. But I will be 100% honest with you, Callie, right? This came out at the last minute, um, along with uh, economic development, housing and zoning regulations, right? I haven't even really had time to process everything that's in all of these things. And I think it's, it's deeply problematic that such, so many monumental and consequential bills are coming out of the state legislature at the 11th hour of the 11th day, right? Um, Mm. Even if so much else wasn't going on in the world, and this were the only thing happening, there's so much here to process that it's going to take weeks to understand. And this is, 
you know, sort of the normal operating procedure for the Massachusetts state legislature. Um, but I do think from a from a perspective of transparency and openness and sort of democratic deliberation, it is not the way that we should be operating. Aaron, one of the things on the lowest level is that there is a yellow sticker that is going to be placed at all the fuel pumps in Cambridge. Cambridge agreed to do it first, which says something like what the message, the warning label is on cigarettes. If you think about it that that way, it just says that, you know, this is there are major consequences on human health and the environment, including contributing to climate change, warning drivers who are burning gasoline and diesel and ethanol which is interesting. You know, it's a, it's a public message thing. It's definitely. Massachusetts likes to be a policy leader, not, you know, on issues like transgender rights, on issues, especially like gay marriage. There are places that Massachusetts rightfully and sometimes wrongly, but rightfully um, fancies itself uh, a policy leader. And uh, with the federal government uh, inept and not acting, that this bill is a really big deal in Massachusetts. The last minute nature of it doesn't bother me just because that's human nature. That's the way you know most legislatures work. Would I like it different? Yes. I'm, I care much more about the legislation that hopefully Baker will sign. Um, and you know, th- this is an example of maybe the state's working to get it right. Uh, can, can I add something to that? Um, sure. On the yellow stickers, um, on, there's literature, a lot of literature on nudges, which is, you know, you put information for people so that they sort of are encouraged to do something. Um, the most familiar uh, I am with with this literature is in Latin America. And for the most part, it tends to be relatively ineffective. However, um, because this keeps uh, people's awareness about the topic, it can lead to different behavior later on. That is, it might not nudge people within that particular thing, but it might set the agenda for something else. And in that sense, I think it's it's great. It is a uh, a policy that uh, that I'm glad they, that they put in. What they're setting that nudge is setting the stage for. My understanding is that by 2035, all vehicles to be sold in the state are going to be at least partially electric. It, yes, so that's right. you're nudging people towards understanding why that policy is being put in effect, rather than to Luis's point, trying to change their behavior, which is very difficult to do. Well, I would argue that maybe it does both, though I would agree that it is, it is difficult to change people's behavior. And I would liken it not necessarily to the cigarette um, warnings, but more to the nutrition labeling in, in uh, restaurants, because you go in, you look on the wall or you look on your menu and it says um, the thing that you really wanted is 10,000 calories, <laughs> which, which you, you did not know before. And then the thing over here that, you know, you could also eat, you know, you just wanted the other thing is, you know, 2,000, um, you know. <laughs> and I, th- I would argue that it, it makes a difference after a while because you now are faced with the information. So maybe this will work on on an awareness level, uh, that's even bigger than just the awareness of the policy, as Shannon has said. So we'll we'll wait to see what happens. Just also to note, when one of those other big uh, bills that got passed, the Massachusetts Senate did an override of Charlie Baker's veto and passed the law expanding abortion access. That's kind of a biggie because a number of people were concerned about what the federal government may or may not do. And also, this was an overriding of, of uh, Governor Baker. Any response? Shannon. Uh, and, you know, not particularly surprising when you when you saw the original vote. Um, 
I think this was sort of a, a foregone, a little bit of a foregone conclusion. Um, Baker had to take that position. Uh, I think the legislature knew that that was coming. Not surprising, but it might be very significant. We don't know how the Supreme Court is going to act with the 6-3 majority. It hasn't really been tested yet, per se. Uh, so it could end up being a very important decision. I, I agree with Luis there on, the, on that last point. And it, I, I saw it and was like, oh, it's almost like the Democrats have a super majority <laughs> in the state house. They very rarely flex that muscle, um, especially with Charlie Baker there. So it, it was striking to me that the Democrats actually use their power in the state house when they typically um, are, are quite meek. Uh, and Charlie Baker, to Shannon's point, did exactly what he has to do. He's already a um, very popular governor, but uh, those in the mass GOP um, who are running this mass GOP don't like him much. Abortion, if he had signed that, it would have been um, deeply problematic for uh, Baker holding on to those people. So he did what he needed to um, electorally. All right. I promise some. Um, I think it's good news in terms of uh, opening up uh, who represents us. There has been a significant number of LGBTQ candidates who won in both blue and red states. Uh, let's first of all hear from New York Congressman Richie Torres and Mondaire Jones, the first two black openly gay men elected to Congress. Sixty you percent know, of the Democratic conference in the House of Representatives is women, people of color, LGBTQ. And so I'm proud that I'm going to contribute to the diversity of the world's greatest legislature, uh, the United States Congress. If I had grown up being able to see someone like myself in office, let alone in the halls of Congress, it would have made my coming out process so much easier for me. I would have been able to see in real time that it actually does get better for people like myself who are frankly not given the same opportunities, who are discriminated against. Okay, boy, this Congress is going to be very interesting <laughs> on so many levels. Um, what, weigh in, Louise. What do you think? <laughs> uh, well, every every election, it seems like we're getting a more diverse Congress. And I mean, exactly what they said, right? There, it's going to make a lot of difference for people that can see this, uh, that can see that their leaders are like themselves for the LGBTQ youth. Uh, but the other thing that it's going to make a difference on, I would expect, uh, especially now that uh, Democrats might have some power, is that there's going to be some issues that are going to come up that otherwise would not have been covered at all. Mm. And again, I want to emphasize, Aaron, that it's red states as well. Tennessee has a Republican, uh, Eddie Manis, who is gay, and a Democrat, uh, Tory Harris, who identifies as bisexual, who won, they both won seats in the, in the state house as well. So I mean, this is not just not just blue states. Yeah, it's a big deal. And I think some of it's generational that um, for younger individuals who, whether they regard or uh, identify as a Democrat or a Republican, are by and large totally fine with gay rights. They support gay rights. They're, um, you know, more inclusive when it comes to transgender issues and things like that. So some of it. I think it's just good news generationally that these issues, LGBTQ issues, just aren't as politicized for that cohort. 
And just to double down on something Louise said, uh, we know this matters for descriptive representation. Seeing someone like me in positions of power does make people think um, differently, that they can run for office, that their identity is worthwhile. They need not hide if um, uh, they're gay. And it also matters for substantive representation, that policy outputs are better. Um, uh, different issues get on the agenda and different questions are asked in committee hearings, the more diverse our Congress and state legislatures are. And Shannon, this could end up potentially maybe having some interesting coalitions uh, because we're talking about red and blue states around some issues that people might not have thought there would be some cooperation um, around just because there are some other collaborative experiences that, that people can can identify with. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, um, if we look at sort of particularly there's been a lot of experimentation around sort of how what we might call deep canvassing and how we change people's minds about LGBTQ issues. And what really works is that sort of person to person contact. So diversity within the, you know, the Republican caucus, I think, will certainly help build those bridges. Um, on those sorts of issues. And, and I just really, as someone who studies legislative politics, I really want to underscore what Aaron said, right? Representation matters. And, you know, on social media, I do, I do not get into political debates, but when I often see people say, you know, vote on the issues, not for the person, I almost always jump in and say, no, right? The research is clear that representation matters, both for how we think about our government and how we feel about our government and for what our government does. And so it is deeply significant that our government better represents the population that it serves. All right. Closer to home, another first, Maria Rivera. Here she is. She's from Central Falls, Rhode Island, the first female and Latina mayor in Rhode Island. Coming from humble beginnings, my Puerto Rican parents moved to the U.S. in hope for a better life. I know stories like these are not uncommon in our community. Because my parents spoke only Spanish at home, I had to take ESL classes to keep up with my schoolwork. Another common experience here in our community. So, you know, she's taking leadership of a city, as this piece notes, as residents and businesses are trying to navigate the coronavirus crisis. Uh, now, I mentioned that because uh, much of the research has pointed to the high levels of coronavirus spread in Latino communities, particularly among Latinas. So this could be quite significant on many levels, but there you have it. Louise, I'll let you weigh in first. And, and by the way, we should say that means there's Latinos in Rhode Island and in Georgia. Go ahead. <laughs> that is right. Um, well, I want to point out that I, I'm pretty sure there has never been a Latina mayor in Massachusetts. Uh, as, it, as it turns out, in New England generally, we have uh, Latino representation has been pretty pitiful compared to our numbers in general in New England. Uh, but when it comes to Latinas in particular, it has been dismal. So the fact that she was elected is fantastic. I think Latinas, for a lot of reasons that are complicated, uh, have been the core of a lot of social movements in New England for all kinds of things, but they tended not to run. Uh, for office, or they were less likely to run. But that seems to be changing, and I think that's great news for the same reason that we were just talking about in terms of representation and why that matters. Uh, Shannon? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, Massachusetts and Rhode Island both have a, have a deep history of, 
of having very white and very male political delegations. Um, and I think we're starting to see the undoing of that just sort of more generally. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that we will see more of these sort of historic first wins like this. Um, because again, I'll say it, as I said, in last, representation matters. It matters. Aaron. Yeah, right on. This is good news. You <laughs> promised good news and it came. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's exciting in that way. And it's exciting for another reason you, you articulated that um, COVID has hit communities of color so hard and in Rhode Island, particularly Latinas. And we know that's because they're more likely to be frontline workers and more likely to experience um, discrimination when once they do seek out health care. Having a Latina mayor, she she cannot be, she's not the voice for all Latinas. That's unfair to put that on her. But she, she knows some of those facts. She lives in that community and is more likely to bring it up when something, you know, boring on zoning comes up. Seemingly boring, I should say. It means the agenda and the types of questions that get asked differ. And that matters for outcomes. Individuals in Rhode Island will be better served as a result of this. So not to undercut the good news, I, I, I must bring this one point up. You couldn't let it last. I'm sorry. Just one more thing. Um, President-elect Biden has uh, rightfully been given credits so far for having probably the most diverse cabinet nominations, we should say, because, you know, these people have not been um, approved yet by the Senate. But um, there, there certainly is wide diversity. What's missing? No Latinas. Um, that's pretty interesting, given what Luis just said about grassroots organizing by so many Latinas in these organizations. I actually thought that uh, if Gavin Newsom, as he uh, was going to replace Kamala Harris, that he would either put another black woman in that seat or he would put a Latina and he put a Latino man. You know, that's not a horrible thing, but it's just interesting to me that somehow in a lot of the positions that we might have thought they would be thought of first, they're not. I'm going to let you have first crack, Louise. Yeah, it's I am very disappointed about that. I'm not really sure. I don't have a good answer as to why he's not taking into consideration. Maybe he has taken them into consideration and he for whatever reason uh, he hasn't ch uh, chosen them. But I, I am hopeful that he will still, I think he's missing an important constituency. And what do you think, Shannon? You know, I, I, I would agree that it's disappointing. Um, and I would hope that as he fills out the remainder of the slots, that he does take that into consideration. Um, I will also point out, though, that I don't, I don't want it to under, undercut the fact that the nominees that he has put forward are quite diverse. We have a number of historic firsts. Um, you know, the first uh, Native American for, for interior, um, you know, so that's that's really important. And I and there's still more work to be done. And I and I hope he he finishes that out in ways that we are less disappointed. But I will also just sort of tie this back to the Georgia results to say this is part of the reason why Georgia matters so much. Right. Um, that these nominees have not yet been confirmed. Um, but in, they are much more likely to be confirmed now um, that the Democrats have 50 seats with, with Harris serving as a tie-breaking vote. Right. Aaron? I'm torn. Um, on, on the one hand, I'm like, Biden hasn't picked all, or he, he's not done with his selections. 
We haven't seen other high ranking. We don't know who are lieutenants and things like that or undersecretaries in various cabinet positions. So, you know, part of me says, wait and see, let us let, let him finish filling this out and see how he does on representation, um, especially because he has picked the most diverse cabinet of those he's picked thus far. Um, so on that side, I'm like, you know, give him some time. Uh, on the other hand, I think, well, I'm a white female and that's really easy for me to say. Uh, the Latinx community was huge to getting him uh, elected. So I, I, I'm not definitive there, but I'm torn between those consider two considerations. And I'd be remiss if I didn't note that what is still open also is the labor secretary, because all of us in this area know that uh, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh is uh, somebody who's, you know, right up there being considered. And there's a big push for uh, in that job for it to go to an Asian woman, actually. And there's other issues about wh whether Marty Walsh represents kind of the old labor and what labor is uh, today is very different and should be represented, therefore, by somebody who, who uh, embodies that. So I'll let you weigh in on that as our, our last conversation. Luis, what do you think about that? Yeah, the labor movement is, is definitely uh, very different. And I'm not sure how Marty Walsh would fit that, you know, would best follow the policies that Biden uh, would want to pursue or want to implement. But I do hope, I, I, I do hope it's somebody else, frankly. So we'll see what happens. So Aaron, I would say uh, not only does representation matter, but relationships matter. So I would imagine that uh, Marty Walsh <laughs> is a, a top candidate because he has a good relationship with Biden and he does have a background in labor. Yeah, you want to work with people you like. Right? Mm -hmm. um, I actually think Marty Walsh would be a great labor secretary. Um, uh, that's not, I don't know enough about the other candidates. I'm not saying he's better than those other candidates, but I do think he would be good in that role, um, as many would, but Marty is one of those individuals. I think the critique that he's pure business unionism, old school unionism, it, it, is it fair to his record? If you look at his record when he was so involved um, with building and trades, and he was the person who was pushing those individuals to diversify. He had apprentice programs far be long before those unions were calling for it. He was a real leader on diversifying in terms of race and ethnicity, especially and gender, race and ethnicity. He put those programs through. Is he the best at oratory? No, <laughs> um, but he is someone who has been able to produce outcomes. Um, he's way ahead of his time on those issues. And I think it's a misreading of his record to say that he doesn't get the difference between business union and uh, unionism and social mo movement unionism. I think there are other critiques that are meritorious of his record and in the city of Austin, but on labor, um, this is his wheelhouse and he's shown that he can not only get those people, business and labor together, but that he understands how all encompassing that category of labor needs to be. Shannon, weigh in. So, you know, I like Marty Walsh, but I, I might disagree with Aaron a little bit. Um, you know, I do think that, that Marty Walsh represents sort of the old school face of unions, trade, um, you know, working, that sort of thing, and more or less aligned with sort of the service face. Of, of unions, um, of housekeepers, of, you know, uh, you know, hospital orderlies. 
um, that sort of thing, with that segment of the workplace is already diverse, right? We do not need diversity programs for, you know, um, home health aides and for hotel maids, right? What they need, right, are living wages. Right. And so that's not to say that Marty Walsh has been opposed to those sorts of things, but I think that's the critique of Walsh, that 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 the new face of the labor movement, it is important to diversify those those occupations. But we need to elevate those service workers um, who toil for so little money and during a pandemic at such great risk, right? I was struck tying this back to our first conversation of, you know, they evacuate everyone from the Capitol. And then when they come back, who's cleaning up so those people can come back? Black and brown people, right? And that is the face of labor. And I would like to see someone who represents that part of the labor movement and who prioritizes those needs and those concerns. And I think I need to jump in here, though, because Marty Walsh has done exactly that. I know his labor record really well. I, I, I totally agree that maybe somebody else out of a social movement union should be the face. But that doesn't mean that his record as mayor hasn't been to work with justice for janitors, to work, you know, I forget if it was issue one or issue two with the nurses right now. Uh, I think it's a misreading of what he's done on the ground that he doesn't know everything Shannon just said. Is there maybe someone who's a better choice? Yes. But he's not the he's not the face of that though. He's not the face of that. And that's I think why I think we can find someone better. And, and that's why I just said it. The maybe that you need someone else as a different face. But I, I think, you know, a, a full reading of the record allows for both of the things we said to be true. Okay, well we gotta leave it there. And once again, all three of you bring the heat. So thank you for joining me <laughs> in this conversation. Thank you all. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Erin O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Louise Jimenez is an assistant professor of political science at UMass Boston. Shannon Jenkins is the interim assistant dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, and professor of political science. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>